Hey, Task Talks listeners. Sometimes you need to test a student's specific skills, but you want to do it easily and comprehensively. The Pfeiffer family of diagnostic achievement tests will help you do just that. The FAR measures reading skills, the FAM measures math skills, and the FAW measures writing skills. And they all use a brain behavior perspective to evaluate learning disabilities. Plus, you can quickly score protocols online using PAR iConnect. Learn more at parinc.com backslash Pfeiffer, that's F-E-I-F-E-R, or contact your PAR assessment consultant, Theo Miron, at T-M-I-R-O-N at parinc.com. Greetings, salutations, and welcome back to the Task Talks podcast, a podcast where we talk about the going-ons in the world of school psychology and other random musings. Um, I'm Chris Ponce, and joining me as always, the man with the plan, Brooke Roberts, the golden voice, Kia Sala, uh, the classy one, Megan Medina, and today <laughs> we do have a special guest, the current president of Task, Cassandra Holsey. How's everybody doing? Great, guys. There's applause, Cassandra. Yeah, good. Um, So, Cassandra, because this is the first time that you've been on the podcast, and so our listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit better, um, kind of talk about how did you become a school psychologist? I know when we kind of all talked about it, um, we all almost stumbled into the field, you know, through some weird trajectory. Is that kind of what happened with you or from a little girl, you always knew you wanted to be a school psychologist? Absolutely. I think... Nobody really knows that school psychs exist unless you accidentally stumble across it somehow. Um, I decided my freshman year of high school that Silence of the Lambs was my favorite movie and I was going to be a psychologist. Nice. (laughs) I wanted to be around and figure out weird people like that. Finished high school, that's still the plan, right? I'm going to school, I'm gonna be a a clinical psychologist start my undergraduate program, major in psychology. I'm on a mission. I'm graduating with that degree in clinical psych. Get to my junior year undergrad, start doing all of these personality classes, clinical interviewing classes, and I'm like, hold up. (laughs) This is kind of weird. Like, I don't really jive with everything that you guys are telling me and this it just sounded kind of sketch to me I'm not gonna lie when do we talk about the serial killers right is that what you're (laughs) waiting for (laughs) I don't know you know just getting into the Rorschach and the tat and all of that I was just like this sounds really hokey and (laughs) it got a little too touchy-feely for me I'm not gonna lie And I was like, oh my gosh, my whole life is a lie. What am I going to do? I'm about to graduate and I don't want to do this. You're in too deep at this point. (laughs) And then I accidentally, through one of my psych classes, found out about school psychology. And it was, it was like a light from heaven. Like, oh my gosh, there's your out. This is your out plan. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God start over you can actually still use all the things that you already learned and just kind of switch gears a little bit um so sometimes your career is actually just an escape hatch yes that's exactly I love that 
No, I just, you know, I've, I found out about school psychology. I thought that is, you know, it's much more objective. I felt like, you know, it was more, um, you know, school psych is all about the data, show me the data, research-based practices. And I really, I really liked that part of it. And school was always a, a happy place for me, a, a place that I enjoyed being. And it just, I can't even describe the feeling I had when I was, um, when I was listening to this person talk to me about school psych, it was, it was a total game changer. And it just really clicked like, yes, this is what I need to do. I did a, I had the opportunity to do a, a practicum, an undergraduate practicum. And I shadowed a local school psychologist in that school district and just had the opportunity to do some amazing things. And the rest is history, as they say. That's really, I've never heard of an undergrad I mean, that was nothing that, I mean, I have a bachelor's degree in anthropology, so like we didn't do anything like that, but I, you're the first person I've heard that's actually done an undergrad practicum. It was the opportunity to do a, a practicum in any field of psychology that you wanted to see, you know, just to like test it out a little bit. And so since I wanted to dabble in school psych, I took that opportunity to, to do my practicum in that area. And that's when I, everything fell into place. That's weird. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. I was an undergrad psych major, but yeah, I thought we were advanced, like getting to do practicums in when we start from the day one of graduate school. I was like, oh, what a huge advantage this is. I've never heard of undergrad level ones. The way it, yeah, seems like it, it was a very lucky experience to, to have. And I, I actually haven't heard anybody else mention that they had an opportunity like that through their program mm -hmm. either in the field of psychology, because there's so many different like subfields, I think that's a really good thing to kind of allow you to test things out. Like that led you into the path, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. you don't know if you were like, there's, there's so many different ways to see people sitting at their computer, writing reports yeah. for so our different aspects of our field. <laughs> so. You could be in a private office, you could be in a school, you could be in a cubicle. <laughs> I almost feel like, so I went to Kansas State University for my undergraduate. I almost feel like they had all of these psych graduates come back and complain or something about how, well, you didn't tell me I can actually get a job with my undergrad psych degree. And so, you know, after hundreds of these complaints accumulated, they must have thought, hmm, we better just make it really, really, really obvious to people that you can't do anything with an undergraduate in psych. And then yeah. that was their life's mission. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> if, you, if you're going to really take this major on, you need a game plan. So I... I wonder if, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think that, that my program was very intentional about giving, giving their students all of the information for what you're gonna do after you complete this undergrad in psychology. And, you know, from speaking from the perspective of being in a, in a university, those school psych programs that are housed in departments of psychology or colleges of arts and sciences rather than colleges of education tend to have a better pipeline into their school psychology programs. Whereas in college, this is just my, I have no data, so I'm not being a good school psychologist right now. How but, dare um, you, Brooke? How I know. dare you? But so this is just my subject, my subjective opinion is that- This is that your inkblot. Right, right. It's a butterfly. Uh, <laughs> but I, I feel like in colleges of education, it's more difficult to keep an awareness on your school psych program because everybody who's in a college of education as an undergrad is trying to become a teacher. 
And so they're really not necessarily thinking about immediately going to graduate school. So I guess maybe, Cassandra, kind of talk about, obviously, you became a school psychologist. but uh, Did you start your career in Kansas? I did. I did two years as an actual school psychologist. (laughs) Where I instantly became something else that I didn't understand called a licensed specialist in school psychology. Was the transition from Kansas to Texas in the profession difficult? Were there differences between the two states? There are a lot of differences. Mm -hmm. You know, you think that it's different to go to a different district within Texas. And, you know, every district interprets IDEA and and state law differently. Well, the states really do things differently. (laughs) And I, I made the transition at the same time that Kansas was abandoning the significant discrepancy rule for LD and learning cross-battery patterns of strength and weaknesses. So professionally, I was already, you know, making a big switch in my practice that way, but then also just kind of getting dumped in the middle of Texas and having to figure that out as well. So it was a very large learning curve. Interesting. Interesting. So I guess, when did you become affiliated with TASP? Brooke is actually a part of my origin story with the task board. Origin film. Let's listen to it. (laughs) So let's see. When was this? Maybe um, 2013 or 2014, somewhere around there. I I heard about NASP's um, Public Policy Institute, or PPI, and it just sounded really, really interesting to me, and I, I really wanted to go. I asked my employer at the time if they would be willing to pay for that and they were like no that's too expensive it doesn't really pertain to what you're doing for us and (laughs) so I thought about it and I thought about it I was like no I really really want to do this this is an area of interest that I have and I'm gonna pursue it so you know I out of my own pocket I paid all of the travel expenses and the registration and I made it an investment in my career and it actually turned out better than I would have expected it to but um, I met Brooke at that PPI in Washington and um, there were just three of us from Texas at that whole at the whole conference thing yeah where was it Washington DC (laughs) one of the best experiences of my life, certainly one of the best professional experiences. I just thought it was very, very cool for for lack of a better word. It was very cool. Um, Yeah, we could be cool. I I felt like it, um, you know, I got to look behind the curtain and realized there's just some little man back there who's not that impressive and there's nothing really to be afraid of about getting you know, getting out there and getting involved in advocacy and talking with lawmakers. And um, it, it changed my perspective in a really big way. So, Is it because you were from Kansas that you used the Wizard of Oz analogy? <laughs> that last I, did, I did not even pick that up, but that was fantastic if that was on uh, Now that you say that, I hate myself. That um, was really... <laughs> That's one of my pet peeves, actually, is when people make Wizard of Oz jokes about me. So, oh, okay. okay. Crawl under a rock now. Thank you. We'll, we'll strike that from the, the episode. Oh, but you didn't ask me about PPI. You asked me about how I got on the task board. 
So I met Brooke there. A little ashamed to admit it, but I was not a task member at the time. It's okay. I've always been a NAST member, but I, you know, I was relatively new to, to Texas and um, I had not joined the state association yet. So Brooke has, I think you were president elect. Yeah. Did his presidential duties and said, you really should become a member of TASP. And I made a commitment to him that. Here's the application form. <laughs> I, I made a commitment to Brooke that before I left PPI, I would join TASP. And I did. I think we were sitting in a session and I said, hey, Brooke, guess what I just did? <laughs> <laughs> um, and another reason that I you know, was interested in that experience was I, I told Brooke that I was interested in getting involved in, um, in state and national leadership in school psychology and felt like this would be a good way to just increase my, my skills and my experiences. And you know, he started talking to me a, a little bit about um, the board and, and how to, you know, get going with that. And I think it was, it was either that year that I think it might've been that same year. Um, the area four representative um, had to move. And so that, that position became vacated and they needed somebody to fill it until the next election could happen. And um, the president at that time knew that I was interested and I happened to live in that area. So asked if I would be willing to um, sit in the area four spot in the previous one's absence. And I said, yes, and that's how I got started. It's awesome. Um, just in regards to supervision and you um, being on TASP as the area four representative, did you have someone kind of on the task board supervising you and helping you um, as a new person on the board? I feel like I mean, I'm going to praise Brooke and that's like, I, I feel like that's a dangerous move because we don't want to encourage him too much. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, I really, I, I think Brooke did a great job of making me feel welcome on the board and making sure that, um, that I was just connected with other board members. And uh, I just, I just really loved the inclusiveness of the people on the board at that time. And everybody was, everybody is there to support each other. Nobody's, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. We, we're, we're all here for one common goal and that's to support the profession of school psychology. And the group is just, it's, it's such a positive group of professionals to be around. And I think we all do our part to motivate and inspire each other to do our best work. I agree. It's a collective mentorship, right? I mean, everybody's there to kind of hold help with any way. And I, and I got that a lot last year coming into it. I remember that first board meeting, I was so nervous that I think I talked a million miles a minute about anything. And then I got an action item at the very first meeting and I'm texting somebody else on the board like, okay, what's an action on? What do I need to do for that? <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as we were done, three people that had been on the board forever, they all came up like, if you need help with anything, just let me know. Or like, I can get you in contact with people and all that stuff. Because I was, maybe on the outside looks fine, but on the inside, I was trying to be like, I don't know how the hell I'm going to make a freaking pamphlet <laughs> about the school psych shortage in the state of Texas. Like I thought I was just coming to meet everybody for this first board meeting, not knowing I actually had to bring something to the next one. And then COVID hit. And then basically we all just pivoted and went had to do something different, but still like I a hundred percent agree with you, Cassandra. There's so many people on the board that are able to help with a whole bunch of different things, but I want to thank Megan for that awesome segue 
into supervision. Uh, and maybe we can all start off kind of talking about our experiences, whether limited or vast, as far as what we have done in this, in this area, right? So like, I've only been able to be a supervisor for one year and I've only had one person I've mentored and supervised. Um, and it went fantastic. Like it was nothing like he was a great tester. We just kind of, you know, worked on some of the areas that he needed to work on and worked on report writing and interpretation. But really there were no ethical dilemmas. There were none of those things. It was pretty vanilla in the sense that everything went pretty well and we got him his hours and he went off into the world. Like, and I don't, I don't know what your guys' type of experiences have been with supervising, but mine has been pretty good so far. I think that was interesting because like, I feel like when I started my fourth year, they're like, oh, you can supervise now. Like, here's some people you're going to put on your license. Like, here's some people you're going to go look after uh, and manage that. Cause I, I, so I've had a number of people that I've formally supervised, like in order to meet their requirement <laughs> when they were interns and trainees in various capacities. But I also feel like I've also just had a lot of people that I've mentor, been men, assigned like a mentor to, like people who are just new to our area and just needed support as well as actually supervising like in an official capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had, I've gotten to see it from a bunch of different angles and it's, it's, it's hard. A lot of times it's very easy. A lot of times people make it very easy for you because they are talented and knowledgeable. Um, but then there are some, some challenges you run into from time to time. I think mostly in that last category. Um, I've, I personally found formally like positionally supervising people is one of the harder ones. Cause then, you know, things come up like getting HR involved on stuff or having to do like those kinds of steps have been the most challenging. I don't feel like I've had a major issue with practice um, supervision or mentoring because most people have either been very talented and capable or they've taken direction very well in that regard. Right. Something I see a lot with um, school psychs becoming supervisors is that we don't really get formal training on it. We're kind of just pulled in like, oh, you have four years. We need someone. It's nothing covered in school, right? If you look at the 60 hours or whatever we do, there ain't nothing in there about supervising people. Exactly. You have to do a lot of your own research. I mean, NAS provided a lot of that for me, but also I had a really good supervisor my internship year and trainee year. So I tried to remember everything that she did and kind of model that framework as well. Um, But I think it would have been nice to have formal kind of training um, in districts when we become supervisors. It's kind of like, it's kind of like children and parents, right? Nobody gets formal training in how to be a parent. So either you felt like your parents did a good job, so you're going to model what your parents did, or you're like, my parents did not do a good job. I'm going to do everything the opposite of how they did it. Uh, but I feel like it's very similar with supervision. If you had a good supervisor, you're you know, probably going to do things pretty similarly. And if not, you'll know exactly, well, I wish my supervisor would have done it like this. So that's how I'm going to do it. Exactly. It's funny you say that, Cassandra, because we were talking about it in one of our pre-means about how they don't like do anything when they give you your child for the first time. They're just like, here you go. You can leave now. And like, there's no like <laughs> test you have to take or a like, quiz or anything You've been here like 24 that. hours. You got to go. <laughs> yeah, you got to go. Like, I think you kind of get the gist of it. Like, get out of here and stuff like that. And no, you, no, you can't take the wheelchair out of the building. You have to walk the rest of the way, you know, so, like stuff like that. But I do like, at least in my district, we have like our, he- our head of psych services and then people underneath her who are in charge of supervising for the district. And so I just kind of followed their lead. So same type of thing as Megan was saying, we kind of, I saw what they did. 
and kind of got notes from them and kind of followed the same type of curriculum that they kind of did, which is kind of a into the fire type of curriculum, you know, and just kind of as things come up, you kind of just work on those. So I tried to slowly develop one, but it's nowhere near anything that's competent, I would say at this point, especially since my first one was really good. So a lot of it was, do you know how to do this? Yeah. All right. Well, I guess when you're done, we'll talk about the case and kind of what happened and things like that. See, I think I had kind of a weird experience being supervised when I think back on it, because I actually had two um, supervisors at the same time. Yeah, I did too. And it, it is weird. Yeah, because basically what I was doing, I was working in a dual role capacity and I had like this formal supervisor who was my like officially like I was on his license and he was signing off on things, but he was supporting me with all of the um, traditional kind of school psych stuff. And then I had a second supervisor who was more of an expert in SLD and ID and like the cognitive and achievement side. And so basically like they would both either both look at my report or like if it was only like SLD only or ED only, just the one of them. And they were both really competent and really smart and really talented, but their personality and supervisory styles were basically complete opposites. Um, and so that made for a really weird piece is just like just <laughs> responding to their personalities, not their knowledge. Like they were very helpful and helped me grow it tremendously, but it was weird having these two completely different styles of people. Like divorced parents is what you're saying. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Kind of. Um, I couldn't really play them against each other. They were too smart for that. Um, yeah, no, no but I think it's really cool. Yeah. I think it was also really cool because I saw that like personality style wasn't, couldn't, didn't have to be the driver. It's like, you didn't have to have a certain style of how you respond to people or connect with them and engage with them to be successful. Cause here was one person using a, a, a very, like being a hands-on direct and you know engaging and then another person never more hands-off just completely different kind of style and both of them I think were successful as supervisors right for me and I and I think well I know Cassandra you're in kind of a unique role as well you want to kind of talk about your current position sure uh, I'm a special education coordinator and uh, I supervise our assessment staff so diags and LSSPs um my official title is um, operations and compliance coordinator, which sounds really fun. It sounds um, like a fortune 500 company type of thing. Because I don't want people to run the other way. Um, <laughs> and also just like rabbit hole over here makes for some really interesting random phone calls from yeah. people in the district who only see the operations and compliance piece. And I would get random random phone calls about is this okay is this legal like are, and so they probably think you're hr my kid is getting calls from the army is that i'm like I don't, I don't know. <laughs> oh i thought i thought you were gonna have people calling you like i don't know if these pipes are up to code like yeah, when you yeah, said yeah. like yeah. operation because i thought operations like school operations like you're getting calls like we, we we think we need to upgrade this electrical grid you're like I don't yeah know. <laughs> i haven't gotten that one yet but i have gotten some very strange things i'm like no 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 no, no. not that kind of operations yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah I, I supervise our assessment team got it and so are you formally supervising any like grad students right now or are you just kind of just the team as a whole um i am currently supervising in uh, a trainee right now and okay. i've supervised practicum students in the past i don't know how you guys feel about this but my experience has always been i know this this sounds bad but it 
it's very draining on me professionally to supervise, especially practicum students, only because they're very new, right? They have a lot to learn. They need a lot of handholding and guidance. You know, I continue to do it because I recognize that it needs to be done. It's the responsibility of older seasoned LSSPs to help train the new ones to make sure that we continue to have the steady flow of professionals coming into the field. And I believe that it's important and necessary work, but man, is it draining sometimes. <laughs> and I find myself needing to take a break in between students. So I typically need at least a semester just to recoup and recollect myself, remember how to do my job as a solo person. <laughs> okay, give me another one. Um, but it's, it really, for me, it changes the flow and the dynamic of how I do my job. I've, I find myself needing that, just that respite in between to collect myself. And can you go into more of like, what's the most difficult aspect of supervising? Um, for me, I think I, I'm a very organized person as you really have to be in this job. And I, you know, I have my to-do list every day. This is what I have to do to get done. And I, I've got it all plotted out and this is what I need to do. But then you throw another person into the mix and I'm supposed to be giving them opportunities to do these things. And I've only planned for myself, right? So I find myself not only having to plan for me, but now I have to plan for another person. And it's, it's just, I feel like it's taxing on your working memory to say, okay, here's all the things that need to be done. I can do these things, but then this person, well, this person can only do these things and this person needs more support and I'm gonna have to help her while she's doing these things. Or, you know, it's, it's just adding a lot more variables to the mix, I think, and then, you know, I think a good supervisor really tries to maximize the opportunities that their students have and expose them to new things and making sure they're, they're getting a well-rounded experience. So then just constantly thinking about, well, you know, have I given them this kind of case or have I given them too many of this kind of task and I need to help facilitate this more. And um, you know, it's just constantly being aware of a lot of different variables. I, I actually, I agree with that because the one person I've had was very like, laissez-faire go with the flow so when we first started it's like all right what do you want to work on and he's like you know whatever whatever you got for me <laughs> and so I would just start giving him things but then I forgot about his little checklist that he had that he had to go over so like I was like all right you're supposed to he's supposed to eat in the cafeteria like for a day and like see like being and seeing that unstructured environment and like we did we had to, like knock those out like little things like that because I was focused so much on the assessment report writing piece that I forgot about the macro and like system things that he was supposed to be participating in. Um, so that was something that I need to grow in is like knowing and understanding that there's more to it than just the testing and report writing and things like that, like participating in RTI, participating in, you know, counseling sessions, things like that, you know, doing observations, you know, and those types of things. Those are some of the speed bumps I definitely know that I need to work on personally. What's up, Brooke? What do you what do y'all think that universities could do or training programs could do to make this experience better for supervisors? I, I don't know because I think part of it's 
you know, like I said, just the, the learning and the exposing that they, they're, I don't know if there's a way to replicate that effectively in universities. I think that's just part of the nature of it. The things that bother me about it, like, you know, when Cassandra said, like the things that tax you, honestly, that's one of the things I thought of were like double checking birthdays and ceiling rules. Um, Cause I feel like that get, that's just tedious when I'm like, oh, you missed the ceiling rule again. We have to go rescore this or oh, you, you put this kid as two years older than they are because you plugged their birthday in wrong. It's hard because those are mistakes that anyone can make because a lot of them are just, you know, mental slips. I think to Chris's point about just remembering all of the other types of experiences that they're supposed to have, um, some of that responsibility falls to supervisors, but that's also a, um, a responsibility of the student. So they need to be the ones saying, these are the things that I need to accomplish during this experience. And yeah, I'm going to work on these cases. I'm going to do this this testing and I'm going to do this counseling, but don't forget I need to do these things too. And they should be helping you remember those things. So if you've gotten to the end of the practicum or the internship and they haven't checked all these boxes, to me, I feel like that's more on the student than on the supervisor. Now, Brooke, do you want to kind of talk about what your role is kind of, cause you're in dual places. So as far as you being a supervisor, I think one of one of our jobs as supervisors, we tend to, as school psychologists, we tend to bristle when we are described as gatekeepers. In some ways, as supervisors, we are guardians of the field. Um, and so we have to assimilate these graduate students into our profession, into our identity as school psychologists. But we also have to make sure that in, in many ways, we are the front lines to make sure that those who are coming into the field are qualified to come into the field. We may be able to pass a class. We may be able to academically perform well, but I have worked with interns and practicum students that needed to be coached out of, uh, of our field and find something a little bit different because it wasn't going to be a good fit. And so I'm not, I guess I'm not saying that that's my predominant role, but it's certainly something that, that, that I'm as a, um, as a supervisor, that's something that is on my mind. Um, and I want to be able to vouch for this person. I want to be able to provide them a good recommendation when they go out for, uh, for a job interview. Um, and if I can't, then I'm, I'm misleading them, but I'm also, um, possibly harming the recipients of the services that they could begin receiving. Right. Well, I've, I've noticed you kind of have to have a certain type of personality to work on our field. I mean, it's a lot of talking in front of groups of people, being confident in what you're saying, standing by your data and standing by your testing. Um, and I, I do notice that some people who may be great in the classroom because you can do well in class may not have those types of traits as far as in the field. Now, Brooke, you're talking about that you, that you kind of take that on as your, as part of your job. Do you feel like you, those conversations come fairly often with students or no, as far as moving them on to a different field? I mean, my, my experience is limited there. There, I mean, I, I can name some cases. Right. I mean, I, I can definitely point at some of those cases. And I think uh, sometimes students, I don't know what it was like in your cohort, but sometimes students figure that out themselves, you know, and they, they're like, you know, this, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, I really thought I was going to be 
you know, counseling or something, or yeah. I thought, and, and when they realize, you know, we do have a lot of compliance, we have a lot of paperwork. Um, and, um, and, and that, that tends to push some of them out, yeah. away from school psychology. Like Cassandra's <laughs> clinical psych. <laughs> to that point, I, I've experienced that as well during supervision where a student's skill set is great for some aspects of our job, but really not for some of the other. I, I hate to say more important because I don't think the paperwork and that kind of stuff is more important, but legally speaking with timeline compliance, it's pretty important. Critical. Um, I, but critical. I think that given the, the shortage that we are in right now, I think that students who may not possess all of the skills to do all the parts of the job are in a better position now than maybe they would have been in the past because you can get picked up by a district or a contract company who says, look, we just really need somebody to do this special ed counseling for the school district. And so somebody who might not be great at all of the, the timelines and the paperwork might be really great at going in and doing counseling with kids and, and doing that one-on-one -on -one work there. You can certainly find a district who doesn't use their LSSPs for that, or you can, you know, you can find, um, you can find little niches that, that carve out a, a, a subset of school psychology skills. And you can, you know, you can get by that way, um, just given the, the state of, uh, you know, our, our professional shortage. Yeah, I think in a similar vein, one of the kind of, a, it's it's not directly here, but related is I had a lot of opportunity in my, my previous work to work with a lot of new teachers to behavior programs. That just kind of became part of my role is that I was I was supporting people who were new to teaching, who were in these behavior classrooms or, or behavior sorts of programs um, for inclusion or resource. And I started to notice kind of what, sort of what you were saying, Cassandra, is like, I don't need, I'm not going to get someone with every skill set because they're a new teacher in a lot of these cases, but there were certain skills I needed for it, in order for them to be successful. And there were other things where I'm like, if you don't have this part of it, like, we'll figure that we can develop that piece. Um, but it started to be a lot more about like, like dispositions and temperament and personal principles. And the rest, like, if they didn't understand all the compliance pieces, I'm like, I can teach you that. Like, you know, as long as you have the, the position to do that, but the skill set needed to be a successful teacher in a behavior program is very specific. And there's part of it I cannot teach you and I need you to have, or else you're, you're going to need to find a different teaching position because I don't think you'll be successful in this role unless you have that. And I think school psychology is kind of that same way. You know, we have our 10 to, you know, areas of practice and I don't know anyone who's amazing at all of them. I'm certainly not. But there are certain ones where if you don't have those pieces in place, I don't know that you can be successful. And I think a lot of that goes back to fit with your, 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 your again, your style and your personality and who you are more so than some of your skill sets. And NASP talks about to taking a strength-based approach whenever you are supervising interns and trainees. And so a lot of this 
kind of sounds like that, right? Of looking at their personality and um, are they collaborative and maybe they don't have that timeline piece, but they have all these strengths in this other area and we can focus on those strengths and kind of pull them up in um, the areas that they need help in. Yeah, I think that's really important because I I can't imagine going through an entire school psych program, reaching the end, getting placed in practicum or internship, and then either realizing yourself or having a supervisor tell you, you're just not really cut out for this. Maybe you should consider something else. It's a lot of hard work. (laughs) How devastating financially, emotionally, (laughs) I can't imagine. I I would just want to know how can I scrap anything out of this? I think it's really important to to find those strengths and guide them. We have so many areas of need that need filled. We can find something for you. I mean, I think there are very, very few rare circumstances where you just somehow by the skin of your teeth made it through a, a school psych program and just completely are not cut out for it. I would question your training program, to be quite honest. Like, how did you make it this far? There, there is something for everybody in, in our current climate right now and with the enormity of competencies that school psychs have at the end of their, their program, we can find something for you. So that makes me think about something that may be interesting to just maybe me, and I'm okay with that. Do you think maybe the future of our field in general is more of a, like what you're saying is a needs approach where... Cassandra and Brooke, you kill at counseling. You guys are going to focus on that completely. Megan and myself, we're really good assessors. We have no personality. So we're going to do that stuff and we're going to knock them out. And Kia is obviously brilliant at, you know, professional development and all that type of stuff. So he will focus on those, but we're still all part of the same district and we're all still technically school psychologists, but we're just focusing on our strengths. Because I mean, at least in my district, it's still like I have two campuses, somebody else has two campuses and you just kind of do everything on there. But like you're saying, Cassandra, what if maybe somebody's strength is not in testing, but they're a phenomenal counselor? Can they just focus on that? I think that happens a little bit within your school districts. Once you've got a team assembled, you kind of realize where people's strengths are. And if you've got a weak link or two in one area, um, you know, I, I feel like you know, one of my jobs as a supervisor of assessment staff is to do that, right? If, if I see like something's just not jiving <clears throat> right over here, but I know that this individual, you know, who, who's currently at doing something slightly different is really good at what this person is struggling with. That's kind of my job as a supervisor is to kind of balance that all out and make it all work as a smooth system. And I, I think that's not necessarily a job for our training programs to do, but that's really the job of your, your supervisors within your, within your district. I feel like working from that strength-based approach really helps with burnout as well. Um, Cause I know when I'm in a district that asks what my strengths are and what I like to work with, like such as autism evaluation, for instance, and they give me more autism evaluations, (laughs) I'm at a much happier place than if I'm doing things that I don't like as much. And so I think it's really good, but it's hard to do that with the shortage in mind. Um, It's hard to put people in the certain areas that they like when there's a shortage and we just need everyone doing everything right now. So 
So this is bringing up um, one of my LSSPs in my district right now came to me at the beginning of the year and said that her jam is dyslexia. She's also interested in increasing her leadership skills. And I said, that's fabulous because I know dyslexia and I can talk to you about it, but I really, it's not anything that I'm very passionate about. So, you know, I took that opportunity to say, look, we, we have some training in this area that needs to happen with our staff. You're passionate about it. You want to get more involved in this. I'd love for you to lead that professional development. And it made her really happy to do that. It, you know, it didn't seem to her like just another thing that she was being asked to do. She really wanted to do it and it made her happy. I have a question for Brooke. As at the university, how are you prepping your people for taking instruction? Maybe some times where the supervisor has different thoughts than what maybe they've been taught in your program? Or Yeah, if, if you think back to when you were in grad school, when you were coming into the field and you didn't have any pre-existing knowledge, you didn't have any, any pre-existing theoretical perspective of you know, learning disability assessment. Um, and so what you taught, what you were taught was truth, capital T. You know, it, it, there was no arguing, there was no debate. To this day, I still swear by what I was taught by my advisor and, and my cognitive instructors. And my supervision style is very similar to, to that. And, and so I think that starts to rub when we get into the real world, when we get into the, you know, the, the application of these principles. And maybe somebody went to a different university that's now my colleague and was taught in a different way. And so now we've got, okay, how do we, how do we deal with this? You feel like that we ought to be evaluating, um, I don't know, we, let's talk about intellectual disability um, eligibility, right? <laughs> um, and uh, I think some of us the other day, we were talking about scatter doesn't matter versus, well, if you got a flat profile, you, you know, you can only have intellectual disability if you've got a flat profile. Well, what happens when you get into those different situations? So I think what we do in, in our program is what I hope we're doing is we're teaching our students not what to think, but how to think and how to think critically and how to solve problems. If one of our primary roles as school psychologists is to be collaborative problem solvers, then this is going to be a major, a major task of that. And so I, this is going to sound really basic to you, but one of the texts that, that I really like our students, anybody that I have as a supervisee, I make them read uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and How to Win Friends and Influence People. It, it just, it's, we can know everything, but I think as Kia was talking about dispositional skills, you know, the, the temperament and how to work with people is really, really what's going to be, help you be successful at the end of the day. So Brooke, one of the kind of to speak to your point that you talked about, about the separation of, you know, the ideas of what you were taught and that what I actually did go to, when I went to NASP one year, I went to a session on supervision. It was like a panel to try and learn more. And someone said something that was super profound that's always stuck with me. And so now that's, I, I replaced what everyone else told me and put that in its place. Um, but what he said was one of the key things to being when you were a supervisor for a licensee, your goal is to help develop them into a good school psychologist not to develop them into a good school psychologist for your school district. Mm. And I thought that was really important because 
that goes back into the trap of what you kind of what you're talking about of in our district, we do methods X, Y, and Z for all these different pieces. But as we know, like you just talked about the, the debate for ID, we have debates for SLD, we have tons of debates for ED and AU. I think it's, it's a responsibility of supervisors, licensee supervisors to ensure that we are being open and understanding and critical and examining our ideas around eligibility, around service delivery to help our trainees and interns grow into good school psychologists, not good future employees for my district. Again, I hope they do stay because that's part of why you take on interns and trainees is that they'll stay with you. But it's more important for our field that we're developing good practitioners. I agree with that, Kia. And I think one of the things that I try really hard to do when I'm supervising is to not answer their questions, which sounds counterintuitive, right? Because they have lots of questions and I'm supposed to be teaching them, right? I don't do them any favors by just giving them the answers. And I, I'm sure I've had students just get very frustrated with me because they asked me a question and they just wanted me to give them the answer, right? But I, I'll say, well, what do you think? Tell me about why you think that that might be the case or where could you look to find that information? Or, you know, I, I engaged them in that that problem solving about how would you find the answer to this question and what would be some different solutions to that problem or you know just thinking about it more critically and openly and really making them apply their school-based knowledge in that in that real world setting and i think that that helps them this has been a great conversation um, and uh, it's definitely something that we need to come back and, and revisit. You know, there's lots of, there, there are a lot of resources right now regarding um, supervision and school psychology that maybe weren't around 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and, and maybe we should highlight some of those resources. So Cassandra, thank you for being here and for spurring us along. We are so proud to uh, to serve with you um, at TASP. Really looking forward to this year as uh, your presidential year. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. We're going to close with this lightning round. Okay. So this is all about you, Cassandra. Favorite go-to snack? Chocolate. One of your all-time favorite movies? Well, Silence of the Lambs got me kickstarted in psychology. So was that about Lecter or was that about... Um... Yeah. <laughs> it's not about Clarice, to be honest, but Hannibal okay. is an auxiliary character. <laughs> um, uh, no, that's more my serious side. That just I'm also pretty ridiculous sometimes. And so my, my other top favorite movie is Wayne's World. You can quote it. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. The last TV show you binged? I'm currently binging Dexter because I'm getting ready for that ninth season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, favorite meal of all time. Oh, I love fresh spring rolls. All right. And your coffee order, your go-to coffee order. Oh, I'm really digging the, um, the Starbucks cold brews, the, the, the caramel cold brews. That's Is that with favorite. the nitro? Mm-hmm. An unusual or fun fact about yourself. I'm just really boring. No, <laughs> I will randomly think of an awesome answer to this question when I'm not being asked this question. But the second somebody asks me, I can come up with no things. No things. Cool. No things. <laughs> Thank God you're the president of this task, right? <laughs> hey, anybody can do it. Apparently. <laughs> what sparks joy in your life? 
my family and my friends, definitely. But um, also my professional side of me is, is uh, it brings a lot of joy, especially when I'm learning new things and I can see that <clears throat> my work is impacting positively. Uh, that brings me a lot of joy as well. Hey, there's a term for the, uh, the thought process of when you're asked a question you don't know and then you walk away and then you actually remember it. You know, that's called the stairwell effect because you're going up the stairs and you remember what you were going to try to say earlier. As soon as, as soon as we get off of this, I'm going to come back and say, no, wait, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, wait, wait, no, I have a good answer for all those. All those are wrong. <laughs> At our next board meeting, I'll tell you the answer to that question. That sounds good. Thank you for joining us, Cassandra. And thank you yeah. for being our fearless leader on the board this year. Yes, appreciate it. I love, love, love that y'all um, created this podcast. I think it's fantastic. And I can't wait to see all the awesome things you guys do with it. Oh, we're very excited too. We're very excited. And we're, we're glad that we have your support. Of course. Of course, of course. Well, we also appreciate all the listener support and hope that you're going to be with us on every episode. Um, make sure to follow our official task Facebook and Instagram accounts at TXASP, where you can get all the up-to-date info on what's happening in our field and what the board is currently up to. And until next time, make good choices. <laughs> <laughs>